This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week, Jeff's finally jumping back into our Acts of the Apostles series with a message on Peter and John and how they found themselves in some hot water. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. Well, I don't know about you, but I have found that I often, without even realizing it, live with a false belief about life and about God that is neither true nor helpful. And I don't mean to, and I don't necessarily choose to believe it, but deep down, subconsciously, I guess, it's there. And the longer I follow Jesus, the more aware of it I am becoming. See if you can relate at all to this idea. Here's the false belief or the false expectation that I have of life and of God, often without even realizing it. It's that the more good things that I do for God, the more good things God will do for me. That's it. That's the false belief that the more good things I do for God, that the more good things God will do for me. You ever think that way about your life or about God, where maybe you think that the more moral or righteous that you are in your behavior or the more generous perhaps that you are with your time or your finances in particular or the more kind that you are towards people that you disagree with or the more spiritual that you are in your behavior where maybe you are really intentional about praying and reading your your bible every day or maybe the more that you volunteer in church or with different ministries in the city or the more that maybe you share your faith with people who are far from god or just the more that you help other people out and serve others in some practical ways that the the more good things that you do for God and for others for that matter, that the more good things God will do for you in return, that the more he'll help you or bless you and just kind of give you an overall better life. You ever think or believe something along those lines? It's a common belief or expectation, a dangerous expectation really, that many people have, I find, about life and about God, where we kind of live with this quid pro quo, karma-esque kind of faith. And whether it's, you know, something we believe consciously or subconsciously, we, we just tend to believe that if we do the right things in life, that things will go well for us in life as a result. And almost like God owes us something, that he owes us his blessing if we do, you know, lots of good things for him. But it's interesting, as we read through the book of Acts, and in particular as we think about the story of the early church, we discover pretty quickly just how false this expectation and this belief about God and about life truly is. We're by way of quick recap. After the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, filling every believer with the power of God after they waited for the Holy Spirit to arrive for several weeks. And after Peter got up and preached this amazing sermon on that same day, on the day of Pentecost, a sermon that God used to lead thousands of people to surrender, uh, surrender their lives to Jesus and to be baptized. And after Luke, the author of Acts, 
tells us about how the early church formed this new kind of community together, a community that was committed to doing life together, to worshiping daily in the temples, to meeting the needs of the poor and the needy around them, even selling their possessions in order to do that, and just overall committing to this incredible, radical lifestyle of full devotion of Christ together as a community of faith. After all those amazing things, after this amazing start to the church in Acts 3, we come across this story, which is another incredible story about Peter and John, the two kind of key leaders in the church at the time, and this disabled beggar outside of the temple. Do you remember this story? It's actually the last passage that we looked at together back in November before taking a break. If you were with us, we're in Acts 3, verses 1 through to 11. After having been asked for some money from this disabled beggar, we read uh, what Peter and John did in response. Look quickly with me at this. We're not going to dwell on this story, but I do just want to highlight again, remind us of what it is that happened here in this story. We're in verses 4 through to 6 of Acts 3. We read this. Here's how Peter and John responded to the disabled beggar. Peter and John looked at him intensely, and Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked up at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, he says, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then miraculously, as Peter grabbing this man's hand, you know, helps him up to his feet. He begins to walk for the first time in his life as he was disabled from birth, walking and leaping and praising God, Luke says, and then going into the temple with Peter and John to worship God as part of the community of faith, which he previously was not allowed to do as a disabled man. It's an amazing story, a beautiful story, a story of God bringing his healing and his, his wholeness to a man who so desperately needed it. That's what we looked at last in the book of Acts, the story of Peter and John healing this disabled man. Where in faith, they did a good thing. For God, so to speak. The kind of thing that you might think that God would reward in some way. It's not the only, quote, good thing that they did for God uh, here that day either, by the way. As throughout the rest of chapter 3, we actually see Peter taking advantage of the opportunity that presented itself and, and preaching to the crowd that had gathered because of the miracle, which is something that we see happening consistently through the book of Acts. It's a pattern that you'll notice where a miracle of some kind happens, a crowd is drawn, and then the gospel is proclaimed. It's what, ha it's what happens here in Acts 3 as Peter gets up in verses 12 through to 26 and preaches Jesus to the crowd. Let me share just a small sampling of some of what he said in this impromptu sermon. We're starting in verse 12. Peter says this, people of Israel, what is so surprising about this and why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power and godliness? Or in other words, you think that we did this by our power and ability? Let me, let me assure you, it wasn't us, but it was Jesus the author of life, he calls him a little bit later on. The, the one, he says, who you killed, but who God raised. Jesus is the one by his spirit who did this, not us. And then skipping down to verse 19, Peter goes on and says, Now, kind of in response to everything that I just said, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence 
of the Lord, which is what happens when we turn to Jesus, when we repent of our sins. Our souls are refreshed as we are forgiven and made new in Jesus, which I know some of you are longing to experience. You've yet to experience that. You want to have your sins forgiven. You want that sense of refreshment to come over you. You can experience it because of Jesus. That is what Peter is saying here. Peter goes on and says, and he will send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, that one day Jesus will return. Verse 21, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. When he returns again, as God promised long ago, through his holy prophets, Peter here is preaching boldly to the crowd isn't he? Unapologetically sharing the good news of Jesus with them and inviting them to respond by repenting of their sin, turning away from their former way of life and turning to God instead, knowing that one day Jesus will return and make everything wrong right as he restores all things. It was no doubt an amazing day and an amazing scene as Peter and John performed this amazing miracle in the name of Jesus. And as Peter then preached this amazing sermon, a sermon that Luke tells us in Acts 4 verse 4 resulted in thousands of more people coming to faith in Jesus and joining the church. Like by any and all accounts, Peter and John, they did a good thing. They did good things for God that day didn't they? Certainly much more than I've done in a day, or for that matter, probably in my lifetime. And so if you're at all like me, and you tend to assume that if you just do good things for God, God will do good things for you, you might think that things would go well for Peter and John from here on out, coming out of this story, that God would bless them with a relatively you know, easy and stress-free life, or at least a, a relatively easy and stress-free couple of days or weeks, and that life would be good for them as a result of all of this. You, you might think that God would bless them in this kind of way, but that's not exactly how things played out for them, is it? Look at what happened to Peter and John coming out of the story. We're in Acts 4 now, starting in verse 1. We read this. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, while Peter was still preaching and John was ministering as well, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some Sadducees, who together belonged to what was known as the Sanhedrin or the high council, which was basically a group of, of up to 71 powerful Jewish men, powerful Jewish leaders and aristocrats who yielded a lot of political and religious power in Jerusalem. They were basically the, the ruling body or, or the court there on behalf of Rome in Jerusalem, where they could do just about anything that they well pleased, except ordering an execution. That was something that only Rome could do, which is why in Jesus's trial, if you remember, they appealed to Rome and to Pontius Pilate in order to have him crucified. That's who Peter and John are confronted by here. Members of this very same group, the Sanhedrin. Okay, verse 2. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is resurrection from the dead, as Sadducees in particular didn't believe in this. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection or an afterlife or anything of the sort. 
And more than that, they, they also would have been very concerned about some of the political implications of this kind of teaching, as teaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had raised from the dead and was going to return one day to establish his earthly kingdom there in Jerusalem, as Peter had basically just said in his sermon to the crowds, to the people. Well, this would have been seen as a threat to the Roman Empire, who the Sanhedrin were in place to protect as it could lead to a revolt and it could get violent if people really believed this sort of thing. And so they're deeply concerned about what it was that Peter and John were saying. And so what did they do in response? Well, verse three, they arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail until the morning. So here's Peter and John, right? They just did these good things, amazing things for God. And what happens as a result? Well, they end up getting thrown into prison for the night. Like, what's up with that? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute, but it's important to know first where this particular story fits in the overarching storyline of the book of Acts. Because up until this point, it's pretty much been up and to the right for the early church, hasn't it? You know, with thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus and joining the movement and miracles happening and the church enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Everything's going great for the church up and to the right. Like if Peter had to write an annual report for his church's AGM, as I am working on right now for ours, which is coming up in March, it would have been quite the report, right? Like it would have been filled with God's story after God's story and miracle after miracle with very little mention of any sort of opposition or challenge or threat to the church. It would have been a pastor's dream report. I'm telling you, I'd love to have written that report. But that's all about to change here in this very moment as Peter and John are thrown into jail for the night and as conflict is now introduced to the story where from here on out, things are going to be hard for the church and persecution and imprisonment and torture and even martyrdom are going to be the norm. And even though uh, the church, by God's grace, continues to grow and thrive, actually, in the midst of all of this challenging stuff, it's not going to be smooth sailing for the church anymore as conflict and opposition and hostility towards the church is now going to be a big part of the story of the church in the book of Acts, starting here with this particular story. Well, back to the text. Look at what happened uh, to Peter and John after spending the night in jail, where starting in uh, verse 5 of Acts 4 still, we read this. The next day, the council of all the rulers, so now all like 71 of them probably, and the elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Verse 7, they brought in the two disciples, Peter and John, and demanded by what power or in whose name have you done this? Or in other words, take us to your leader. That's kind of what they're asking here. They want to know who these punk kids, right? These uneducated fishermen really represent because in their minds, there was no way that they were actually acting by their own accord. Because keep in mind here, as, as Peter and John stood before these men, before the, the Sanhedrin, the highest court basically in the land there in Jerusalem, they are basically kids, Okay? John here is likely a teenager, and Peter, at most, might be in his early 20s, as we know that he was married, though he could have still been a teenager as people got married young back in those days. Whatever the case, in their teenagers, early 20s, they're pretty much kids, 
And not only that, that, but they are actually uneducated kids, fishermen with no, no formal training in the scriptures, no schooling, and yet here they stand before the high council, ready to debate with the religious elite of their day, speaking truth to power. Which is amazing, isn't it? Like it's basically how the church got started. It got started as a grassroots movement with a bunch of kids facing off against the religious and political elite of their day, which is, I think, pretty awesome to think about. Like if you're a teenager listening to this, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do great things for God because the entire church started with a bunch of teenagers just like you who believed in Jesus and were passionate about what it was that he wanted to do in the world. Well, reading on then, look now with me at how Peter and John responded to their line of questioning. We're in verse 8. We read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Let me just press pause right there before we look at what Peter ended up saying. Because it's easy, I think, to miss this little detail. That as Peter spoke, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, think about this with me for a moment. Peter here, he's a young guy, as I've already said. A young uneducated, blue-collar Jewish man. And not only that, but he was also quite a timid and fearful young man as well at, at times, right? Luke shows us this in his other book, The Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke 22, verses 54 to 65, after Jesus had been arrested and taken away to eventually be crucified. We see the story of Peter having denied even knowing Jesus three times out of fear of what would happen to him if they discovered who he was and that he was a follower of Jesus. This was just a few weeks prior to this moment. But contrast that now to the Peter we see in Acts 4, where as he stands before the very men that he was once terrified of having to stand before, the Sanhedrin, he is no longer afraid. Instead, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result, he is filled with courage and boldness and clarity of thought and speech as he ends up actually laying the smack down on these men, as we'll see in just a moment. It's a very different kind of Peter than the one that we saw just a few weeks before, denying even having known Jesus. You know, it makes me think about the kind of transformation and the kind of courage and, and boldness that the Holy Spirit longs to give each and every one of us as we follow Jesus today. Where we no longer have to walk in fear and timidity and insecurity and anxiety about what other people think about us and about what's going to happen to us and about our futures and our lives and you know what's going to take place and all this kind of stuff. But we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the boldness and courage that he provides just as Peter did here in this moment. He was filled with the Holy Spirit as he stood before the Sanhedrin, ready to proclaim the truth of Jesus, no matter the cost. It's amazing. But look now at what he actually said as he was filled with the Spirit and stood before these men. We're still in verse 8. We read this. Here's Peter's words to these men. Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done good for this crippled man? Or in other words, you know, we've done a good thing here for God and for this person today, haven't we? Right? Like, shouldn't you be glad that this man has been made well? Reading on, 
Do you want to know how he was healed? He says, verse 10, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I mean, talk about a mic drop, right? (laughs) Peter here, filled with the Holy Spirit, he holds nothing back and in boldness and with no fear in his voice, he lets them have it. Saying basically, you want to know who our leader is? Jesus is our leader. And it's the same one, the same man, the same Jesus that you guys killed, but whom God raised. He's the one who healed this man. That's whose power, whose name we've done this in. The one and the only one for whom salvation and healing and wholeness is found. That's Peter's bold, spirit-filled response to these really intimidating men. The same men behind Jesus' crucifixion and the same men that Peter wanted to avoid just some weeks before when he denied even knowing Jesus. I mean, talk about a transformation. And for that matter, talk about a transformational message. So then how did the council respond to this Message. Well, verse 13, here's what we read. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men, just kind of common, everyday men, with no special training, no schooling in the scriptures. And then listen to this. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I just... I just love that last line, that they recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That even though Peter and John were just common, everyday men, blue-collar fishermen with no special status or standing in society, and even though they had no formal education or training in the scriptures, like they hadn't gone off to Jewish seminary or whatever, or or trained underneath a, a reputable Jewish teacher like the men in the Sanhedrin no doubt had, it didn't matter. Because it was evident that these men had been with Jesus and that they knew him personally and that he himself, Jesus himself, had trained these men. For me, this verse has been especially meaningful over the years. Some of you might not know this about me, but I actually didn't go to seminary as a young man. And I didn't take the traditional educational path that many pastors take towards becoming a pastor. I've taken some classes and courses over the years, and I've completed a couple different programs and so on, but I actually don't officially have a theology degree as of yet. And the reason for that is not because I'm anti-training, not at all, but it's because right out of high school and my passion to serve God with my life, I found myself somehow at the age of 19 in vocational ministry running a youth center with an organization called Youth for Christ and working with troubled teens and just really wanting to make a difference for Jesus in their lives. And so because I was already so engaged in vocational ministry and working with these teenagers, I decided to forego Bible college and seminary and all that kind of stuff and just focus on that work instead. And then I got married young at the age of 22. I won't tell you how old Kim was. 
and we bought a house and started having kids a few years later. And for some reason, you know, I kept getting these opportunities with different ministries and, and churches and so on. God just kept opening doors. And so I just never ended up going off to seminary or school and, and getting my degree the way that I had hoped and, and thought that I would. And while I have completed some different programs and courses and classes, as, I, as I've already mentioned, and I'll probably continue to work on those things and eventually get a degree, I've got to tell you that this has actually been at times a source of insecurity for me as a pastor over the years, especially here in Ottawa, which is literally the most educated city in all of Canada and the city where people's favorite question to ask you at dinner parties or whatever is, what school did you go to? Love it when people ask me that question. It's why this story in this verse in particular means so much to me. Not because education doesn't matter, but because it's not what matters most. You know, at the risk of sounding critical, I'll be honest with you, I've, I've known pastors over the years who are highly educated and very qualified from a training perspective. You know, they're book smart and they know their stuff theologically and they can argue all the important points and all that kind of stuff, but they make terrible pastors and they don't know how to lead and shepherd God's people very well. And I've known other pastors who, again, are highly trained and highly educated, but they virtually have no prayer life, no real connection to Jesus or dependence on the Holy Spirit. And guess what? They too make terrible pastors. That because they're just sort of operating out of their own strength and their own gifting and their own training and expertise instead of the expertise and power of the Holy Spirit, they aren't really helping people grow in their faith either. And I know that that might sound critical and it's obviously not true for the vast majority of pastors, but the point remains that education matters, but it's not what matters most. Pastor or not, by the way, education matters, but it's not what matters most. Instead, you know what matters most? What, what matters most is knowing Jesus deeply and being dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day, committing to faithfully following Jesus while trusting that he will give you the words to speak and the courage to lead and the ability to do what he has called you to do and to do it well as you rely on him first. That's what matters most, knowing Jesus deeply, just like Peter and John knew Jesus deeply. Someone once described it this way when they said that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Isn't that good? God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. He equips you with what you need as you look to live faithfully to his call on your life as a follower of Jesus. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call that I wonder what might all of this mean for you in your life and in your journey today? Where might God be wanting to use you in the world despite how inadequate you might feel? What might he be calling you to do that maybe you are resisting because you think that you're not fill in the blank enough, right? Not educated enough perhaps or not qualified enough or not smart enough or not outgoing enough or not good enough or not whatever enough. Well, let me say it again. God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called, just like he did with Peter and John here. Well, the story ends here in Acts 4, verses 16 through to 22. I won't read it for you in the interest of time, but basically it ends with the Sanhedrin trying to muzzle Peter and John, trying to censor them 
you might say. And I'm not talking about Facebook fact-checking or censoring or that kind of thing. I'm talking about actual censorship where they threatened them with violence if they did not stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so how did Peter and John respond? Verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Like threaten us all that you want, imprison us, torture us, kill us even. We can't stop, won't stop, no matter what it is that you say. But we're going to be faithful to God's call in our lives no matter how hard things get. It's an amazing story, isn't it? It it makes that belief, that expectation that I, I mentioned earlier, right? That the more good things I do for God, the more good things God will do for me. It makes all that sound pretty naive and foolish even, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, God doesn't owe us anything, does he? And for that matter, nowhere in the Bible does God promise that life is going to be easy for us and that if we just follow him and do good things for him and for others, that everything is going to be great in our lives. It wasn't true for the disciples. It wasn't true for the early church. And it most certainly wasn't true for Jesus, who did the most good any person could ever possibly do. And they ended up killing him for it. Ultimately, what matters is this. It's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to us in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty in life and our spirit-empowered faithfulness to him in return, no matter how hard or how unfair life gets. Where despite how unqualified or inadequate or anxious we might feel in life at times, like Peter and John, we say we're going to be faithful to God's call in our lives, no matter how hard things get for us. Because the good news of Jesus is not we do good things for God and he does good things for us in return, but that Jesus has already done it all for us on the cross. And now we're to give it all back to him, striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to live faithfully with him, come what may in life, good or bad, through pain and through suffering and through joys as well. I wonder, as we wrap up, What does all this look like for you in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing in your life right now? What does faithfulness to God in the midst of the good and the bad of life look like for you today? Are you looking only to your own strength and your own ability, in your own education, in your own training, in your own power to get you through? Or are you looking to the Holy Spirit to fill you with his life and his courage and his power and his boldness instead? Well, the invitation of Jesus to you and to me, to his church through this story, I believe is this, is to be faithful, faithful to God, even in the face of opposition and challenge, because he is good and he is so faithful to us. And we see that no more clearly than in the person of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So let's strive in the power of the spirit to be people of faithfulness to God, come what may in life, good or bad. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, that is our heart's desire. It's to be found faithful before you. We can't do this in our own strength. We fail all the time. We give up so easily. Like Peter was uh, in denying you, we are filled with fear and timidity and anxiety. But when your spirit comes and empowers us, you give us life and power and boldness that comes from you. We long for that. We want to live into that this week. God, we confess that so often we just assume that if we do good things for you, you're going to do good things for us. 
And we see faith through that kind of transactional lens, lens. But that is not the kind of faith you long for us to have. Instead, you long to give us a bold and passionate faith, a faith that is committed to sharing the good news of Jesus with others, no matter how hard life may be. May we be found faithful, faithful before you, no matter what it is that we're experiencing in life these days, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast.